David, well, Tad, tell us about it. All right. So, as you may know, the network neutrality uh, issue has raised its head once again. And there are many valid reasons for portions of network neutrality to be a source of anger and frustration for the entire world. And at the same time, there is a whole lot of politic and going on and mistruths that I would like to try to correct. Um, and maybe other people's impressions of it are different from mine. But um, for over two and a half years, uh, a very controversial commissioner in the United States uh, was proposed who was very, very pro Title II regulation. And... Uh, she withstood a lot of flack and arrows before finally withdrawing uh, back in, I think it was May. And they put up somebody new that was a bit more neutral that didn't have quite the same amount of background, Ana Gomez, who successfully was confirmed. So we've gone from a deadlock in the FCC of two Republican commissioners and two Democratic commissioners to a Democratic majority. So with that confirmation... The initial shots have been now fired off regarding this formerly hot-button issue. Uh, I guess I should possibly review a little bit, but basically, briefly, uh, the Democratic administration put in network neutrality rules in 2015, rescinded by the Republican Party about two years later. And um, and since then, it's just been a brewing issue. Um, there's an awful lot to it, but I so much would like to somehow get some of what I regard as the actual truths out. <laughs> so, um, a really beautiful, really well-spoken uh, piece of testimony was just given by the chairman, uh, Joe's, uh, what's her name, Jesse Rosenthal? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, very, in plain English, in plain language, reaching to the people, which is fine. You know. But, um, it starts with 2005, okay? This is when FCC adopted its first open internet policy, built on policy and a long communications law in history. The hilarious thing here is 2005, at the same time, they passed the law that killed all the independent DSL providers. There was a law that had allowed, uh, forced and required that phone companies make available their wires for DSL. And at the time, you know, you could get your DSL services from 10 or more different companies. After they changed this policy, it increased the size of the monopolies. Nobody talks about that. I can back that up with a girl. Anyway, hey, there you go. Thanks for sharing that. Anyway, um, the debate then sort of became about the definition of network neutrality, which was your broadband provider has no business cutting off access to websites, selling internet services, and censoring online speech. Not allowed to play favorites. And so on. These are all good ideas. Okay? And, however, that happened a little bit later, between 2005 and 2015, was what I call the BitTorrent crisis. BitTorrent deployed and it blew up all of our assumptions about that. Uh, what have been a, a ridiculously easy oversell, uh, quite rational against the typical usage spaces of the time, became networks that were completely flooded and misbehaving. And Comcast, which I have a link to as well, I can that 
put in play a very disruptive scheme to try that disrupted BitTart in the hope that it would make bleep work better. And when people were trying to avoid from BitTart, their entire network was melting down. And I caught at this, and they were not transparent about it, and that became a debate all by itself. But the fact that it was originally a technical dispute over a technical flaw, and how the internet is flawed, otherwise known as buffer blood, uh, remains kind of lost to history. So, anyway, um, we've worked really hard on resolving the BitTorrent issue. Uh, in fact, all kinds of traffic conflicting with other kinds of traffic. But still, the underlying technical cause of why political nightmare occurred remains unknown and understood at the policymaking device. So I'm going to skip ahead. So great, this this first salvo is starting off again. And then we have the factor of Title II regulation, which I can get into. Uh, and then we had Ted Cruz kick in saying, ah, network neutrality or Title II regulation was bad. And it's still without anyone actually really recognizing it that there were some serious technical issues that made it difficult. In the decades since since this, well, since 2012, all of us here are having an utterly perfect video conference together. You know, two thumbs up, any level of policies in internet making we did. We've made a substantial improvement in how the internet actually works. And then we have this fight going on. Um... It goes down about how repeal probably put the agency on the wrong side of history and the wrong side of law and the wrong side of the public. One thing that she didn't point out is that both sides ended up astroturfing. You have the 20 million plus components, 7 million uh, on, I think, on the network neutrality side. If I get it wrong, let me know. Were generated by one college student. And something like 10 million were generated by uh, a whole bunch of. Uh, agencies paid for by the ISPs and telcos, and the remaining three million were the actual people that were concerned and claimed that I would actually kind of call them useful idiots in a lot of cases. And there we went. So anyway, they have an MPM, what's called an NPRM scheduled, and uh, you know this is the first time I've ever seen. Anyone uh, call for no death threats this time? It's in the latter part of the documents. <laughs> so I do hope that we can start off with understanding things. In particular, she points to um, restoring competition. I have common sense tells us a thing or two about the state of competition. We have a lousy, lousy competitive landscape in the United States. And I'll pause for a second. I'm pretty sure you have a lousy competitive landscape in France as well and Britain. Yes. Yeah, money talks. Money talks. Well, you know, I liked the rule that, that required common carriage here. If you own the wire, you were required to sell access to all your debtors. In fact, you weren't allowed to enter the business directly. I'm under the impression that Britain has tried something similar but different and it isn't working. Are you referring to open reach with the last mile of copper, that kind of thing? I think so, yes. Yeah, then that's changed quite a bit. I mean, we, we have uh, an awful lot of what, what are known as altnets, even though they're not really. They're, what, what they are is different fiber providers. So you still end up with the, the same ISPs. They're just provide, being provided uh, through 
different networks that have been built by different people. So, for example, here I I have I can get two different fiber uh, sets set up here. Um, I can get the one of them on, which was built by a company called City Fiber, and I have a Vodafone as my uh, ISP. Um, or I could get actually I can get three because I can get BT as well, and I can get Virgin Media. Um, so, but Virgin Media is a cable company, really. So it's it's three. Um, but the, the, they're different technologies. So the, the, the BT one um, is G-fast, is it? Um, so it, that, that is an asymmetric uh, setup. So that the maximum you can get, get down is a gig, but the maximum you can get up is 200. Can I ask a naive uh, open reach question? Yeah. <clears throat> so I have a very uh, sort of uh, antiquated late 2000s understanding of it, but to the best of it um at some point offcom came to bt and said they basically had to divest themselves of what we call loop assets in the u.s uh where when this all happened where did this land as far as the exact parameters of common ownership rules to what extent can the same financial interests own the bt's retail or enterprise salesy division versus their now divested loop company and i'm guessing the answer is that they're owned by more or less exactly the same people and entities but that would be uh, extremely strange of you to say think such a thing what whatever would well, give you the well, well nothing well uh, uh the, the 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 common um uh 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 cultural moment of anglo-american business i suppose gives me that idea but yeah um but but uh and then certainly not exclusively so but what I really this this the heart of my question is this is this is the de facto outcome, but is this what was prescribed or envisioned by Ofcom, and if not, what was envisioned? Well, Andy, if you want to go, I can have a go. No, 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 you you go. You you deal with them a lot a lot more than I do. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Running a, a telecom a telecom and and telephone supplier. Yes, I deal with Ofcom and many of the other people in, in that area uh, on a daily basis. Uh, practically, yes, that was mandated by the government because BT was a mock and uh, to allow other operators to sell retail and business and wholesale-ish, uh, the entire physical infrastructure has been removed from the control, direct control of BT retail. Um, so it, practically everything that is BT retail and plus that, that is the very cheaper arm of BT is just selling to the public. And then there's BT wholesale that is above everything and open reach is still BT open reach clearly, but it's the, uh, organism that looks at after the physical infrastructure, but BT open reach services, every communication provider including my company, etc. So I can commandeer an engineer from OpenReach to go to one of my, my prospective clients to do inspection, etc. So they're working for the entire industry. So that's what changed. Is that better? Is that is that working okay? That's my first one. You know, I mean, yes. Okay. 
My next question is no, no. I'm I'm not in a position to say. Uh, but that that was more where I was going with my question, though. Not how does it work, but how how is it intended to work, and what are what are the problems with the present ownership structure and the common interests entwined in both? I, I don't really know that, but the practical outworking of it is that open reach are involved in everything because they're dealing with that infrastructure, and so they form the bottleneck. So you can go to whichever provider you like for a certain site, but it will be open reach that can't come and do anything for 30 days um, or, you know, create the, the problem for you. Um, it's only when people have their own infrastructure. And here there's a company called GigaClear that have actually put fibers to individual people's houses that you can rid yourself of having to deal with open reach because they're a bit of a nightmare. Yeah, it, it is difficult because practically open reach, I would say, covers about 95% of the physical infrastructure that there's around, including exchanges, et cetera, et cetera, uh, internet nodes, et cetera. Uh, of course, there are then the uh, internet nodes uh, that are then managed by private companies. Uh, there's a node in Edinburgh, for, for example, and one in Glasgow up here in Scotland uh, for peering, et cetera, et cetera, and hosting uh, everything else. But if you need to deliver a service to an end user, uh, 95% of the time is open reach that can service. There's Talk Talk, that's another company that has some of the last mile. Uh, and of course, uh, as Andy was mentioning, Virgin Media that has uh, copper, uh, it's coax. And something, sometimes with the coax, there's a, a, a copper pair that, co that comes in as well. In, in a multi-modal uh, um, cable. So it's a bit of a complex situation and there are then local uh, companies. One example, for example, uh, am I wrong, Andy? Uh, in Hull, there's KCOM that is a completely yeah. independent one. Telecommunications, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so there, there's a, a, a few uh, islands and uh, spots here and there where uh, the situation is different, uh, especially where Virgin Media is present. There's very high competition uh, and there's multiple uh, fiber suppliers. When there is not that much of a competition and uh, open reach is the incumbent, uh, it's very difficult to get in. So there is not that many alternative physical infrastructure suppliers that can service you. Okay, Dave, Dave raised his hand about 25 minutes ago. <laughs> what happened? I don't I had to run upstairs for a drink. You're you're muted. So you you climbed a tree for a drink. Yeah, that you're was, muted, Dave. That was wonderful information. You know, my country's you know stuff. Is, you know, would, I want to know how things actually work elsewhere. You know, I had a, uh, my question for you, sir, is um, to what extent is wireless, not five G, wireless WISP technologies, you know, things like Tirada, things like Wi-Fi. Um, other spectrums such as CBRS, uh, particularly in rural areas, how does how do you extend the internet outside the cities? I know quite well about that uh, because I have a license from Ofcom for point-to-point uh, -point wireless uplinks on the 5.6 gigahertz, and I have a few stations around. But it's it's very niche uh, because of especially here in Scotland for the nature of the 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 landscape, it's very difficult to get a, a, a line of sight point of view that you can uh, if you you need to do multiple hops 
around different um, masts to get to somewhere, uh, opposite to somewhere like probably south of England where there's a bill, uh, rolling hills, you know, and other places, in, in, in uh, especially in the US, where there's miles that there's nothing that is interfering with you. So uh, that wireless ISP has not caught up very well up here in Scotland as well, uh, as long as I uh, can say. There's not much work on that kind of uh, what really had a massive uh, upsurge in very recent months is Starlink. Uh, so the, the, the satellite from Elon Musk, because again, of the nature of the, the territory here. So it's very difficult if you are in a pocket uh, down a, a, a valley, let's call it a valley, so to, a glen. Um, you're so restricted by everything around and the orography itself. It's very difficult to run a cable through a fiber optic. So uh, a lot of people have resorted to uh, taking up uh, Starlink. Carl, that looks like a great solution for your country for a lot of things. Um, yeah, so. it, it isn't for everything, though. I mean, if, if you look at, uh, we, we, we've done, uh, um, it's actually 5G, but 5G in a, a, a Welsh valley. Uh, which is is actually pro provides a much better solution than Starlink for, for most people. Quite simply because the the the, the valley is quite deep, and it's got quite sheer cliffs relatively. So yeah. Starlink sort of like comes visible and then disappears, and then the next near satellite comes in and disappears. So it's kind of intermittent. guy. Yeah, you, you need you need to be able to see quite a large area of the sky to be able to make use of Starlink. Yeah, it was very, been very popular. Right the I'm coming to you live from Starlink. Periodically, I'm sure. my video will distort. And my frame rate is probably low compared to the rest of you guys. Not in a way that really is, is um, apparent. So, but to the heart of Dave's question, not to uh, really uh, derail this down the the British loop divestiture question, but it, it, it's it's lingered on my mind ever since I heard about it back in the day, which is, you know, we broadly agree that uh, the way the CLEC concept was carved out here with loop unbundling as it's been done in the US, that, you know, this, the sheep are put in the position of negotiating with the wolves, uh, with the ILEX, you know, on, on, on in, in as much as, you know, they had to do things like collocate their equipment in the uh, ILEX exchanges, obviously, uh, did not receive very preferential treatment in retailing to their own customers. So I think the heart of Dave's question, if I understood it, and the topic that also interests me most is, okay, so the, in this open reach model and this way of doing things, uh, did, did it work better? And by the sound of it, just based on the feedback I'm hearing, I mean, it's more of a politological question than a, uh, than an operational one, but to, 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 from what I'm hearing, the answer seems to be yes, just because you're 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 merely lamenting a certain dearth of options in certain places, which is very far from our competitive picture in the U.S. So it sounds like, at least on a relative basis, it was done much more rightly. And I think in the in the discourse around the American regulatory regime, it's frequently pointed to as a relative success story. Relative success story. Um, at least that's my thinking. I think. I don't know. I, the, the the problem with with when you've got monopolies like like uh, like BT was, is that 
when when you start to break it up, there's still this same attitude from the majority of people towards the, the that company. People did just, I mean, mm. the, the average person on the street really doesn't care. And it's it's, well, it's BT, isn't it? BT's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The fact that yeah. they charge you twice as much money is kind of irrelevant to them because they don't realize. Well, much, much the same as here. Um, but, uh, you know, one, one can't really control that. But as far as the carrier neutrality of the um, of the loop company, insofar as you can control that, uh, it seems to have been done better in the UK. They have, they have forced through some changes, but you, you have to remember that the government still own, I think it's 48% of BT. Mm. No, that's true. We don't really have state enterprises in that sense here. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, I, I began my career back when uh, in the mid 2000s when the, in, the, the the concept of an independent small ISP was even possible here. And that really, for all intents and purposes, hasn't been the case in America in a very, very long time. Uh, we have cable and we have the telco and that's it. And it's 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 become such an ossified norm that we don't even speak of any of, a, of any conceivable alternative in at least a decade. Well, I mean, um, my, my fiber provision, as I said, is, is through a company called City Fiber. So that's fiber to the premises here. But I can get uh, service on that from about 12 different companies. Um, the majority of them want to, want to charge you exactly the same amount of money. They 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 promise different things. Uh, I mean, like when when it was first put in, I used to get a nine hundred up, nine hundred down all the time. But now the the network has expanded quite a lot, and uh, my upload is usually higher than my download, hmm. uh, which it is. It's okay. It doesn't give me a grand grand issue either way, but. I can go to, I mean, there's one particular ISP in the UK called Andrews and Arnold, which an awful lot of the developers will use. Um, I think David would, would probably back me on that one. Um, I don't, don't know about Corrado, um, and whether he's run into Andrews and Arnold. Um, they have always been known for prov providing high quality um, and, and decent services, but you pay a bit more for them. But I can get that. And I can get that one on a one-month um, contract. I pay slightly more, but I can actually get it on a one-month contract. Everybody else wants 18 months or two years. And I'm in a rental property, and my rent, my, uh, my uh, rent, uh, rents go up annually. So I could get kicked out next year. So I'm, I really don't want to sign an 18-month contract, you know. That's why I do. I do monthly. Uh, that's it. Uh, it's easier. Uh, but you can buy wholesale monthly. The problem is the economic model that is built upon uh, the offers that you get from BT or, or else. They sell it at a loss. So they need to keep you for a long time. So they recoup the loss when they raise the price back to uh, what is the commercial price that they sell. Uh, so it's a, 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 just a financial model to, 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 uh, to sell things cheaper at the beginning and lure people in that's uh simply uh, it's, it's not about the uh, cost to make a parallel so you can understand more or less how it mostly works here it's uh like you can get here in the uk your electricity and your gas from different companies that they're offering you different services at different prices different uh, rates different methods of 
calculating how what you spend and what you use, but the electricity comes always down the same copper, pair of copper wires. There's no difference. Uh, and uh, you know it's quite complex to keep the same uh, frequency, uh, 50 hertz or 6 hertz in the US, uh, when the load changes. So there's a lot of technicals behind it, uh, but it's managed by a single company. What's, what's the name of the company that manages the grid? PowerGen. Oh, yeah, PowerGen. So uh, that's, that's a parallel with off, um, sorry, OpenReach that manages the, the nitty-gritty, the technicals, and has engineers that go around, but uh, everyone else can buy wholesale. And there's one uh, important bit that I'd like to point out. The delivery, the local delivery and the cabinet because the most uh, widespread method of doing uh, high-speed internet is fiber to the cabinet. So VDSL to the end user, so copper for the last mile. Uh, the delivery is made at a, ca at a cabinet and there's different tiers of service that you can purchase in. So if you buy from um, Arnold and Arnold uh, or, or my company or others, we buy the top of the bandwidth. So it's assigned to us and that's what we have and we use it. Uh, then there's uh, retail because I sell to business. Then there's retail uh, like BT, etc., etc. And then there's the other smaller companies or the cheaper uh, companies uh, that are selling like um, I mentioned them before, uh, Plusnet, uh, that buys what remains of the bandwidth. So they are literally buying the scraps and they're selling that. So your internet might be fast or slow, depending on how much load there is at the cabinet. Uh, that's a, a kind of a non-told, not, not said uh, openly uh, rule, but basically that's what it is with quality of service. Uh, the cabinet service different um, supply, su end user suppliers uh, with a kind of uh, kind of jiggery-poggery. But that that is the widest method that internet is delivered now to uh, to the end users. But fiber to the premise and fiber to the home is becoming uh, to be available in a number well, of places. That that sounds dreamily kaleidoscopic compared to what ninety five percent of middle America has. Sorry, can we just uh, one second? I just want to say, David, it looked like you got a word saying, "Okay, thirty minutes or something." And uh, Jim, can you hear me, Jim? And can we hear you, more importantly? Yeah, Jim is muted. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to go, so I'm going to say goodbye. But I was going to raise just a quick question with Andine oh. Carrado, and that is whether, practically speaking, um, how uh, whether there's any prioritization. So if the open reach guys have to have a conflict uh, or, or, or come across a conflict between, say, Talk Talk and BT, how they prioritize that, uh, and you no, know, we'll... to talk has its own engineers, and they mostly commission to Kelly Communications. Right, uh, OpenReach has uh, their own engineers, and they are very well managed. There's never a conflict of uh, space time or whatever. You need to wait a long time to get an engineer out, but when it's your slot, it's your slot. There's yeah. no problems with that. It's very well managed. That, that's good news. I'm going to say goodbye. Nice to see everybody, and see you next time around.
Yeah. Nice to see yeah, you there. Great, great to have you check in, David. All right. We let the geek speak, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Jim, yeah, Jim, uh, long time no here. He's still muted. Can you unmute him? Is he muted? I don't know. Jim? He's probably dialed in maybe too because uh, he's dead, Jim. <laughs> I, my, I hit my mute. There, oh, there you go. And that, that transmits audio better this way. It's been ages. Great to see you. Well, great to it see has you. Been, yeah. yeah, yeah. My camera's not uh, not here. It's hooked up somewhere else. I don't okay. know where. Um, anyway, sorry. I just jumped in at the end. Uh, probably I realized. And uh, I just thought, okay. oh, you know what? I'd been planning on doing this. And I got caught up in stuff. And I thought, I'll just sneak on in here and uh, see what's going on. So here I am. Glad to see you. Oh, you know. You know, um, this really is just kind of a party of people who know each other. Uh, Dave, I don't know. You're uh, <laughs> you're really cranking them out there, Dave. Uh, Dave's putting in the chat a whole bunch of documents. Um, I probably, I was upstairs getting a drink when you probably wanted me to move forward or backward in the thing, Dave. I don't know, I don't know where we were well, here. I wanted to quickly engage with Alex. Yeah. Also, Jim, in what country are you based? I'm based in Canada. Ah, well, that you might have a valid perspective. <laughs> um, this conversation started off with network neutrality, Title II regulation is back. And I wanted to learn more about how the internet had evolved since the last time these political hot button issues came up um, and so on. So, Corrado was giving a description of how well um, the existing fiber to the cabinet and, and ultimately copper and fiber to the home was working in Scotland, as well as uh, Starlink. And Alex is painfully aware of what rural America looks like. <laughs> how is Canada doing on internet access, fiber, Starlink, copper, I, corporation? I'm not aware of anything that we have to brag about. Um, I'm rural myself. Uh, my options are 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 pretty bad. Um, Starlink is getting some traction here. Um, for the most part, we've still got the big incumbent carriers, and they're doing a very poor job of it. Um, there's not a lot of competition, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get a sense. I don't personally think that we have very good leadership. I, I see other places in the world really kind of embarrassing us in a way. Uh, I think we're we're really just not, yeah, nothing, nothing to be proud of in my opinion. So, and not you know, much. Should, go ahead. How go much ahead. of this though, though is that we are, if you like, first world economies, and as such, we've we've had this stuff and developed this stuff, and it's gradually gone in. If you go to like the more let's call them the third world countries, if we really must, if you, if you go to like Africa, places in Africa where there has been no internet at all. And they suddenly have really good internet because there's there's no infrastructure, so they're putting in brand new infrastructure. You know, it's an interesting point you make. My my parents immigrated to Canada from the Netherlands in the fifties, and my mum remembers when she came here how backwards everything was because phones had already been around here for a half a century, whereas they were coming out of World War II and they literally had to rebuild their entire infrastructure. So mm -hmm. um, everything that they had was modern and up to date and everything here, they were still using party lines and all kinds of stuff. So 
I, th- I think that's an interesting observation, and, and I think that must be part of it. it. What we have is sort of good enough in a way, and it's it's hard to justify, you know, Matt. You know, to be fair, there is uh, government investment in attempting to provide high-speed internet to 99% of the country within some kind of a time frame. Now, how they define high-speed is really not fast enough, but, you know, the effort is there to get rural coverage, but it's, I mean, I live on a, um, on a, a, a fairly busy road, so I'm not on a, you know, gravel back road. I'm on, a, I'm on a main arterial road and there is fiber running right past my property, but they're not going to be bothered to tap that and make that available to me. So why not? I don't know. And I'm not even sure who I would go to ask the question. <laughs> That's a great well, question. Well, I, well, I, I, I would like to you know, make it's sure possible to do that. But, but I'd like to make a couple of comments and questions. But first, I want to welcome Mark Lee. Mark is a broadcaster and a podcaster, and uh, he's uh, listening for the moment. He doesn't know that we all know each other because I invited Mark because I've known him from his podcast and his point of view. And I think it'll be interesting to get it. What I wanted to say, and Mark, you can definitely comment on this. Don't you folks all feel, whether we're geeks or not, we are mostly, um, COVID has shown us the problem with lockdowns and COVID and all that has turned us into, I mean, we absolutely have to have a decent internet connection for every person on the planet who has, at least if you've got a phone, you should have internet that, let me put it this way. When we had DSL, I had like 70 down and 30 up. That's actually more than enough to do video conferencing, all kinds of things. But the way I feel, and I want to hear agreement or disagreement, both are welcome. Really, anyone who has any connection to electricity should be able, by some method, whether it's satellite, fiber, DSL, to have a decent internet connection. And that means video conferencing and whatever else is above. You don't need to be able to watch TV, maybe, although that'd be a good bonus. But that, you know, it's just, it's necessary to have that connection. And how are we going to, how are, how is anyone in any nation going to progress if we don't have minimum internet access? If you don't have electricity, then who cares? You don't need internet access because you're not, you know, well, maybe your phone will get it, right? And Mark, why don't you introduce yourself and, and say hello to everybody because, we kind of all know each other, been hanging out for years, but I like to let you do that and everything. Definitely glad to uh, meet all you folks and everything. And I was hearing what you were saying, Randy, and I've been actually having a somewhat debate with the folks that I'm involved with at Pod TV around that because I'm actually a fan of as much of the world being able to have internet access as possible because I do think that we are a global community and all along those lines, but there are some people that create the boundaries of the network that feel that folks in Amazon and even backwoods, Kentucky and other places don't necessarily need that. And I strongly disagree with them on that point, because I think that the more people that can communicate with each other, the better. But I also hear what you are saying, Randy, because definitely I have uh, had some shows with people in Nigeria and other places that don't have the strongest internet connection, and they are still trying to work that out and all along those lines. So definitely got to figure out some of these other nations and help them get better uh, connectivity um, when it comes to being able to connect with the greater world and all along those lines. But 
just to let folks know that are in the, the room and everything a little bit about my own background. Is that all right with you, Randy? And all along those lines, I was actually almost uh, thrust into the radio at a very young age and all in that space. My parents were frustrated that there was not enough African-American or Latin American voices and definitely were not hearing the jazz music that they were big fans of. And this was in the mid-70s, so they created a radio station with absolutely no radio background whatsoever. Mom was trained as a guidance counselor, and Dad was trained as an engineer, but not as a radio engineer. But that radio station lasted for 12 years with the support of the community in the small rural town of Warrington, North Carolina. So that station was on for 12 years and all along those lines. So that is something that thrust me into this lane of the radio and it's something that uh, my family has been involved in for a number of years in the sense of being innovators because my grandmother was actually the creator of the first african-american library in raleigh north carolina when i live in durham raleigh the city just around the corner and all along those lines but she was uh once again frustrated that, that, that we were not being able to get the books that we needed so she went and literally knocked on doors and raised the money to build that library that still exists to this day and i think that that was back in the 40th and all along those lines. So definitely been in the, the space of radio, done a little bit of television, but only a little bit, done a lot with newspapers because I was trained in the newspaper field in uh, Marquette University and all along those lines. And I've been in the live stream space for about, uh, roughly now about five to six years, maybe a little bit longer than that because a friend of mine started a podcast and I joined her and her teammate and the, that founder, Ty Jones, left, but me and Dean have still been involved with straight talk with being in mark and then about three years ago i affiliated myself with pod tv which i'm still affiliated with originally it was called ibm tv and their story was similar to my parents they were wanting to talk about a number of issues like fiscal literacy and um a number of other things that they were concerned about and were told you know if you wanted to have it on network you got to pay a certain amount of money or we'll put you on at 2 a.m so it's not what they wanted to have happen so they created the pod tv which is an existing network with roughly about 40 to 45 shows and still constantly getting new shows because I started off as a guest and then I became a primary uh, host and I still host several shows in that space and now I am pretty much their de facto program director and all along those lines. So that's a little bit about me. If anybody's got any questions, that's the actually abbreviated version because I could definitely get into some other details as well. But definitely that's a little bit about my own background. Uh, Mark, that's that's great, and yeah, I'm glad that was the abbreviated version because I got a couple of hands up here, <laughs> Dave. You know the hands up thing. What that means is that I just get a message that you got your hand up, but you know other people are talking. So I don't know if we finished, Mark. What we were t- actually talking about was the government, the FCC, and uh, the uh, okay. So I'm an old man. I forgot the what's the uh, network. Sure. A direction of the title two regulations or some subset therefore thereof uh restoration neutral, of, excuse me net neutrality was the word i was looking for yeah or, or, i wanted people to not react with their gut now for starters mark what does the word phrase network neutrality mean to you i'm trying to think of i mean i've heard the term and i'm trying to remember what it all meant but a lot of that is around the independence of a lot of the network so i'm also involved with WCOM, which is a Prometheus, part of the Prometheus network, and all in that way through the community radio station and all in that kind of way. So to me, net neutrality is making sure that the folks that need access can have access when it comes to um, the having 
the support of uh, the community and all along those lines. So it's about access to me. That's what a lot of net neutrality has to do with when I think of the term. Because I hear a lot from both the Prometheus folks as well as the folks that are in the, the live stream space and all along those lines. So they would like to that, uh, be able to continue to have a their own free source and not be governed. That's part of what happens with net neutrality. And I think that's where we get in trouble currently is that some of the technology giants are not neutral. They have a lot of control that they may not necessarily need. So I think about people like Facebook. We've got bumped off of Facebook, meaning Pod TV. We've been bumped off of YouTube. We've been bumped off of another of other ones. One of the things that seems to be, ironically, the most free one is the one that has some standards, but they don't seem to be overly, uh, I won't say they're not enforceable, but they're more lenient. And that is actually the source of LinkedIn because I've never been kicked off of LinkedIn at all. I'm not saying others haven't, but I've never been kicked off of that. Whereas we've been a couple of times kicked off of Facebook and YouTube. So the problem, okay. the problem that we're seeing, excuse me, Dave, just one second. The, the problem that we're seeing really now, and the reason I think net, net neutrality is coming back, uh, this discussion is coming back, is because of what free speech you can't see my fingers because my background is... No, I see your fingers. No, no, no. Anyway, this, this whole issue of free speech, and, and specifically for you, Mark, look, um, 40 years ago, the African-American community, for example, didn't have a lot of access to things. Even public access TV probably was limited. Uh, so, you know, today... Anybody can get on. Mark, you've got a whole broadcasting empire going. You can do whatever you want. And basically, uh, on, on, for example, on YouTube or uh, other media, if you're not too extreme, you're going to be on. A lot of people are being cut off because they're so extreme that, you know, that's, I guess, a matter of opinion. But the point is you shouldn't really be on uh, fomenting hatred or problems of any kind. That's the point. The rest of any intellectual, do UFOs exist? Are there really green men? You know, big deal. Get that on YouTube. Let's discuss it. Let people watch that stuff. Anyway, with regard to net neutrality, and Dave, you can come back on this, what I keep hearing is carve-outs. And the carve-outs, right? You, don't, you look like you don't know what I'm talking about, but the carve-outs are where net neutrality is like the people, well, let's put it bluntly, Facebook et al. Facebook is not responsible for disinformation and political uh, you know, mm -hmm. misinformation, except these carve-outs, which are saying that COVID doesn't exist or what you know, stuff like that, health issues, where it's so incredibly uh damaging to people or obviously racist, xenophobic, all of that kind of stuff, which shouldn't be tolerated. I mean, that is not free speech. Free speech is, in my opinion, is not being able to uh, cause harm, to cause, to uh, threaten people, to have real world threats. And, you know, you, we're all on the internet, every one of us here, obviously, and have been for years. Can you imagine receiving a death threat? Okay, you got a death threat. Well, this probably isn't going to happen. But what if you started having people show up at your house 
and you had to have security. This has happened more and more in the past couple of years. So, Dave, you didn't understand about the car routes. You haven't heard about that. But the point is to take, you know, the freedom of the Internet, but to watch out for things that are going to be real issues like, well, you know, doxing, for example. Doxing, and Mark, you know what doxing is. It's Mark Lee is at such and such as an address. That's mm -hmm. doxing. And then people will show up, fanatics will show up, threaten you, maybe with a gun, maybe not. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm going to give it to Dave because I wanted to make sure that we understood these carve-outs in proposed, there are no proposed carve-outs, but there should be exceptions. Go ahead, Dave. All right, so that's a really difficult topic. And rather than me comment, Alex. Always looks surprised. Well, I look a little surprised. Um just because this isn't this isn't really my domain. Um, I did mean to tell you a very quick story, though, that I think could be germane. Um, and I don't think that uh, naked or flagrant corruption should necessarily be discounted as a developing force. Um, and I say that um, back in the early 2010s, uh, I, in happier geopolitical times, I spent a few years living in Yerevan, Armenia, as I think Randy knows, mm -hmm. with my late grandmother. And in 2012, I settled into her apartment with her in central Yerevan in Armenia. This is a country of the size of Rhode Island with less than 3 million people and 85% of whose land borders are closed, as we know from recent news, one of which is actively militarized, which is a you know, begrudgingly a middle-income country. And I order 72 megabit down, 24 megabit up FTTH service to her Stalin-era apartment building from a fiber to the home provider called UCOM, uh, which I thought was just fantastic. Uh, in 2012, we certainly didn't have that in, in Atlanta. I lived in downtown Atlanta. That's my permanent residence. Couldn't have dreamed of such a thing, really. And uh, I got a little bit interested in how exactly this is possible. Um, it turns out that you, the majority shareholder of that provider was also the, either the former or possibly the current, at the time, chairman of the State Revenue Commission, the Tax Enforcement Agency. Um, so, in other words, there were a lot of Armenian dram, the currency, that needed to be um, invested in a, uh, a public good. So I think they went to Ericsson and said, well, how expensive of a GPON system do you have? <laughs> uh, can we get the best one? Um, I'm being a little bit flippant, clearly, but not entirely. Uh, there are some locally and situationally appropriate uh, strategies for accomplishing certain things in different political economic contexts that I think we're somewhat given in our righteousness to just um, to, 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 to just discount altogether. But the fact of the matter is Yerevan had screaming broadband years ahead of surrounding countries and well ahead of uh, some um, Western ones as well, at least if we're talking about average and median quality, at a very competitive price. It was obviously a land grab. They weren't really interested in turning a profit. Um, but that's that's a data point to put on the map. Now it sounds like it's um, it, it sounds it sounds like a, one of those disquisitions in support of uh, natural monopolism, but. Uh, over and over in my dealings with the so-called developing worlds from time to time, I've I've realized that um, sometimes 
socially desirable outcomes can be reached by conventionally undesirable means. And I just thought that was interesting. Well, thank you for that viewpoint. <laughs> is is that good enough to justify everything else they have to put up with? It's, well, well, that, well that, that's that, that's right. And uh, to, to be clear, it's it, it it sounds like a died in the wool Soviet viewpoint. Um, and I, I I don't mean to telegraph that. <laughs> but if you look at Germany now, I mean Germany has fiber to the premises, literally, or everywhere. Like um, I, we have an investor who lives on a, a, a in a castle on an island in northern Germany, and he has fiber that's been delivered across his lake to him, free of charge to him. Which is so just if he has a castle, if he has a castle, me that must indicate some level of wealth. So that's not that surprising. Yeah, it is, but he didn't have to pay for it. This this is something that that just happened. On the other yeah. hand, I did spend some time in Germany over the years, and I, as well as many Germans, have never, at least in the mid 2010s, were never particularly impressed with the median modal quality of their broadband. Um, I most my my experience was concentrated largely in Berlin, where I can say with a entirely clear conscience, with God as my witness, that it wasn't very good. So I'm going back to the middle. curiosity. Just out of curiosity for both Alex and Andy, I've heard of a lot of people, because like I said, Durham, North Carolina is over here where Duke is and all along those lines, but that we have internet on our mass transit lines, our bus lines, meaning that you can access your computer if you've got a laptop, but there are no plugs on any of the buses as of now and any other things along those lines. So I'm just wondering, since both of you apparently have had experience in the European market, how that is going with the light rail because i know we've been looking at light rail even here in the united states and everything and whether you have access to the um internet as strongly as uh could there as opposed to here but even in new york and we have friends in new york i know that they can have internet on the bus and maybe on the subway but a lot of them don't have any way to charge up or to make sure that they have a staple connection while they are getting around a town they all those uh, transportation methods uh, i just wonder how it was there in that situation with the light rail, if any of you had any idea. But, but Mark, on, on the bus, you've got your phone and uh, 3G, uh, 4G, LTE, whatever, no? On the bus, you do have the access to the LG and the, to, the, um, to the various ways of doing it that way. But it's not always um, as strong as it could be. Right. I mean, remember, it's a nice right. size city, but it, it, hopefully they'll do more with Google Fiber because Google Fiber is coming here, but it's not throughout Durham and uh, in that area as of yet. They are working on that, making it so it, it cuts in and out, even with the 3G and the 4G. Okay, so also here in, here in France, on the trains that go between length, you know, like a few hundred mile length trips, on the trains, there is Wi Fi, and the Wi Fi works pretty well. I'm not saying you could do a video conference or anything, but you can certainly answer your emails and text and so on. Well, text, no, that depends on the, uh, the, and the train is changing towers, so it's not always on either. And that's also true if you're using your own 4G, your LTE, 4G or whatever. My wife was recently in Switzerland and uh, she had a fairly good experience, but you know, it's a small country too. In the United States, the problem is one of the things is that it's so vast and huge. Mm -hmm. 
And um, the real problem, Mark, as was mentioned way earlier, I think before you came in, is that with the monopolies in the United States being what they are, uh, the resources aren't really shared properly. And I think that's no news to you. Uh, so, you know, you, you know that in, in New York, there was a building of very wealthy people and they wanted to have their own fiber hooked up and their own network in that building in Manhattan. And they could not do that because of the uh, monopoly of the cable company or whatever it was, the internet people. Uh, so that's a big problem. You know, the biggest problem right now in the United States actually is this monopoly thing and this big business thing. And the day that they get that straight, uh, things will change. But um, other than that... I've alluded to that to some degree, even with the conversation around Meta and Google, because that has been a conversation. And definitely just here in Durham, we've been having a incident where some people don't have their Spectrum because Spectrum has a monopoly in some ways as well. So there are a number of those monopoly issues that you are talking about that are still being dealt with and all on those lines. And that's kind of what I was alluding to even when I was talking about my parents' radio station because they were what y'all were both saying, they were frustrated that they were not hearing that voice heard. So they decided, you know, if you can't do it, if you can't find other people to do it, do it for yourself and all along those lines. So they said for themselves. And I think that that's what a number of people are doing, even with their various internet stations. There are, I mean, Fox TV isn't the only one. There are several of them out there. They have different models, everything from short form to, we use mostly long form. So they're everything from short form to long form to different kinds of, um, topics as well. So I think a lot of people are kind of borrowing the, if I can use a singer example, the Prince model. You know, Prince got frustrated with the music industry and decided to uh, create his own models and his own entities. And I think a lot of people are doing that even in the uh, social media spaces as well. My my sense from world-class subterranean transport systems, and again, I'm not a wireless expert, but my sense just from how it's evolved as I've traveled to the same places here and there over the years and seen it changes, that there is a practice of putting various femtocells in sub in subway tunnels and mysteriously and unaccountably my cell surface worked in places where it didn't work before. But I don't know that Wi-Fi is really the primary delivery method for that. If you, if you look at uh, the underground in London, it's quite interesting that there are two basic, basically two different technologies you can use to to cover um, the, the various uh, networks that wish to use. Um, they're, they're called Mocan and Moran, uh, and Moran is is multi-operator radio access network, which which basically means that you've got a controller and four different sets of radio in our countries because we've got four main operators. So that's what they've done in the underground is, is that there's loads and loads and loads of radios everywhere. Um, but the, the problem with them is that the, the, the tunnels, they're, they're operating at really quite a high frequency and the tunnels all just meander everywhere. They don't go straight. They're, they're that old that they weren't actually built to be straight. So the radios just don't work that well. It's, it's, but there is, there is, a, um, it's coverage and, and, uh, the worst coverage we have in, in the UK is probably on the trains, long distance trains. 
uh, in that they all have white bind, but they uh, they go through cuttings generally. So uh, as such, they just don't receive the signals. So the curvilinear uh, aspect of, of subway tunnels is what kind of kills this. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, the, they have the same problem with mines, of course. I mean, with a mine does not go straight. It goes, goes wherever the seams go, you know. And it's... Uh, the, the only thing about mines in general is that the main tunnels tend to be quite big. So, um, you know, you, you, you have a reasonable area to, with which to, to find a line of sight, close near line of sight to, to broadcast something down. You know, before I had a plan, uh, in the early days here, maybe, I don't know how many years ago, um, cell phone data was horribly expensive, like it was everywhere, I guess, when you first started. So my idea was ubiquitous Wi-Fi. We have to have Wi-Fi everywhere, everywhere. Because, you know, then you can do whatever you want. You can chat, you can send photos, you can be online. But at this point, um, we've got LTE. And I live in a small city, a small French city. So now um, we've got the LTE uh, access is fine almost everywhere. There are a few places. Unfortunately, by the way, this studio, interesting little aside, where I'm sitting right now has horrible cell phone access, horrible LTE access, but I have Wi-Fi, and since I have, uh, we're talking, of course, on fiber, but what I'm saying is on the cell phone end, on the mobile phone end, um, I have Volta, or voice over LTE, and voice over Wi-Fi, so finally, in the last year, I can get calls here, but the studio I'm sitting in belied by the beautiful uh, forest behind me, but there's actually a studio. And in the studio and in many offices here in this town, you you have horrible uh, coverage. You can't even make a phone call. That's all been resolved by by Volta and by voice over Wi-Fi. But anyway, as I said, in the trains, we've got Wi-Fi, so that helps. And then you've got your, your LTE coverage as you move between the towers. It's a two and a half, it's a two hour uh, train ride between here and Paris, for example. Now in Paris, you've got great, you know, millions of towers and LTE everywhere. Anyway, I already forgot the question of what we were talking about because I yeah, the, of a the, certain the, age. asking about with the internet. Hey, Dave, I know I'll tell that you were leaving and everything, but um, when I was thinking about my parents' radio station, they literally went to the FCC because it was easier to get on um, regular radio even during that time because I was in the mid-70s and everything. So I just wonder what your experience was with the FCC and why you were going to uh, met, to the mat with them. Because like I said, we got that license fairly quick at that particular time and everything. I think mom and um, dad applied for it in 75 and then got it in 76. We're still talking a little bit past each other. I understand the radio arguments you're making. I've been a DJ myself in this in the early 80s, late 70s. And uh, I missed the ages of album radio in particular. Right. WKRP in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of live radio and talk shows and stuff, I really miss. And I'm really glad to see podcasts are not blocked, are easily distributed. And in a lot of cases, it's the only way to get the truth out these days. Right. I do a lot of podcasts. Uh, 
So I, and this is in part because uh, Google search engine functionality no longer searches certain things like email mailing lists. I maintain a very, very popular mailing list. You can never find it via Google. Um, there's some really smart people on it. Anyway, so we are talking about- I'm going to die trying. Basically, and I'm mostly concerned about the technical aspects of the upcoming Title II regulation less than the other political stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a future chat, we could talk more of the politics side. And I really do have to split. I have another meeting in about six minutes. I haven't had breakfast or a shower. And I love very much getting an international perspective from you all as to how well your networks were working. Alex, in particular, please join my mailing lists. <laughs> uh, try the blow list. Mark as well would be great. Um, and so on. So anyway, if anybody has like two minutes of anything for me I should know about before going off and violate the FCC again. Keep in touch, well, Dave. Keep in touch. All right. And everybody yeah. look in the chat uh, if you haven't already because Dave posted the bunch of documents and he's got a lot of links in there and uh he yeah. knows how to reach me so if you, you want to do an event or something dave you know i'm I'm there oh, and i'm sure with that mailing list you were, that dave was talking about is in this document as well yes cool. it's, yeah it's on yeah. net. we talk about everything from starlink to buffer load to politics etc but uh since you are new to us and i have struggled as a technologist to communicate the problems to many people over the many years. I love the idea of giving you a funny link to one of my best talks, um, subjects that I care about, and I'm trying to get fixed. So, Mark, if you'd like to copy this down, I'm hoping. I would definitely do that, and if it's okay with you, like I said, yeah. give me the defect deal program director. So if I watch it, and if you want it aired on Pod TV, I have no problem with doing that as well, because that's one of the things that I time to do so after i watch it if you wanted to get aired i'd have no problem with uploading it and aaron said document. thank you very much mark i think you'll get a kick out of that it's they started at the beginning give it eight minutes if you haven't laughed three times i have failed as a writer no problem i'll definitely check it out <laughs> okay adios everybody